All right, we're going to get started. If you could take your seats. I hadn't really noticed it until recently. That's what I said. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. I'm uh, Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies here at, uh, here at Cato. We're here, of course, to talk about a, a massive subject, uh, defense reform, which is to say how we ought to change the Pentagon. To do that, I think we have uh, a great and rather eclectic panel. They're going to offer some competing perspectives on where the Pentagon ought to go, uh, and I'll introduce them in a minute. Uh, we have also, I think, a great crowd, not just in size, but in knowledge. I read through the uh, RSVP list yesterday, and I uh, saw that we have lots of expertise here in the audience. And in fact, some of you could usually be up here on stage. And uh, this being D.C., I'm sure you all assume I mean you. And uh, <laughs> I, won't, I won't disabuse you of that idea. Um, before I introduce the speakers, I want to just uh, set the scene a little bit. I think this is a good time to talk about defense policy because of three uh, recent developments, uh, which hopefully the discussion will touch on. Uh, first of all, the decade-long uh, defense buildup, uh, inflation-adjusted, I think, 43 or 44 percent increase in the base defense budget uh, seems to have ended. The uh, Obama administration says uh, basically wants to halt defense spending growth, uh, save for inflation, for the next decade. And you even hear uh, some people in Congress talking about cuts. Now, uh, without a growing top line, our current defense program uh, isn't sustainable. Indeed, even with a, a growing top line that's not big enough, it's not sustainable because uh, so, uh, there's too much future cost in the pipeline. So uh, if the plan holds, uh, something's going to have to give, and there's going to be some big fights coming uh, within and across the services, and that's, those are fights that uh, people like us should be interested in, in getting involved in. Second, uh, both the Senate and the White House announced in the last couple weeks uh, plans for acquisition reform. And uh, as people who work in procurement know, acquisition reform is a little bit like New Year's resolutions uh, in that they occur regularly, promise great results, and rarely deliver. Um, and now, whether or not this round will be different, I think, depends on what your theory of the trouble is. Uh, you know, the, the Levin-McCain legislation and, and the president's instructions to OMB seem to assume that uh, the trouble is, A, how the Pentagon awards contracts, and B, a lack of honesty up front about program costs. Another theory says that the trouble is uh, what we want, not how we buy it, uh, which is uh, meaning the tendency of the services and their congressional backers to ask for too much in each platform. So these, these views aren't mutually exclusive, uh, but I think if the latter is causing some of the trouble process, reforms alone won't solve the problem. Third is the growing controversy about how much transformation counterinsurgency wars require. Uh, Gates says we need to uh, we need a counterinsurgency military, and he wants to continue changing the services to that end. Now, uh, so far, this is uh, this fight has mostly been about uh, the ground forces, uh, their uh, their doctrine, their promotion practices, their size. Of course, we're expanding the Army and Marine Corps uh, uh, to fight these wars, and uh, to a limited extent about their platforms. Uh, strangely absent from the discussion, I think, has been the idea that if that a counterinsurgency military uh, is really a ground force-centric military. And if that's what we want, we ought to uh, cut the Navy and the Air Force's budget significantly and give the money to uh, 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 the Army and the Marines for manpower. On the other side, of course, you have those who complain that counterinsurgency do doctrine is just a set of best practices for dumb wars and that a counterinsurgency transformation uh, threatens to delude leaders into thinking we can be good at these things and therefore makes them more likely. Um, with that, uh, let me introduce our speakers, who will each speak for 15 minutes max, which I'll enforce so we can leave a lot of time for Q&A. Um, and I'm going to introduce them in the, in the order they'll speak. Uh, Winslow Wheeler is the uh, director of the Strauss Military Reform Project and a senior fellow at the Center for Defense Information. 
before finding his calling as a think tank analyst. He was for three decades uh, an aide in the U.S. Senate, and he worked in the GAO. Uh, he worked for senators in both parties, uh, one time simultaneously, but I think it's fair to say he liked neither party. Um, he's written a few Another books. Another party liked me. Yeah. Uh, he's written a few books, and most recently he ed- he's the editor of uh, America's Defense Meltdown, Pentagon Reform uh, for President Obama and the New Congress, which is on sale upstairs, and there's another version coming out from Stanford University Press, which I think you can order online now. Uh, Danielle Bryan, um, our second speaker, has been executive director of the uh, Project on Government Oversight since 1993. That's POGO. It's an independent nonprofit that investigates and exposes government corruption and other misconduct. It was founded in 1981 as the Project on Military Procurement, and Danielle began working there a few years after that, uh, working with the Defense Reform Movement and the Defense Reform Caucus. So she's been writing on defense reform and oversight issues for over 20 years. She testifies frequently before Congress on those matters, and her organization has been a longtime advocate of uh, defense acquisition reform, uh, uh, some of which the president seemed to endorse uh, last week or the week before. And uh, she's going to be talking about defense reform, uh, past and present, and hopefully we'll touch on some acquisition issues. Tom Ricks is a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. He writes a blog for foreign policy called The Best Defense. Uh, He remains a special military correspondent for the Washington Post, where he covered the U.S. military from 2000 until last year. Uh, Before that, he was at the Wall Street Journal for 17 years. He he wrote Making the Corps, which is a terrific book about how you make a Marine. Uh, Fiasco, the American military adventure in Iraq. And his latest book, which is sort of a sequel to Fiasco, is The Gamble, General Petraeus and the American military adventure in Iraq, 2006 through 2008. And you can uh, get that upstairs as well. Uh, Tom's been on TV a lot lately saying how we need to stay in Iraq for a long time. Uh, For those who disagree with that, as I do, you ought to be able to at least appreciate a guy who can piss off a whole new set of people with each book. And I I certainly do. (laughs) Um, Doug McGregor is the lead partner with uh, the Potomac League, an intellectual capital, capital brokerage and consulting firm out in Reston. He's a contributor to the Strauss Military Reform Project and the aforementioned America's Defense Meltdown. He's also a retired U.S. Army colonel, uh, having served almost 30 years in the Army, during which time he picked up his uh, Ph.D. and developed a reputation as a maverick uh, by pushing Army transformation in his famous book, Breaking the Phalanx, and later uh, in another book, Transformation Under Fire. He's got another book coming out in the fall called Warrior's Rage, The Great Tank Battle of 73 Easting, which is about that famous Gulf War battle and how uh, the first Gulf War led to the second one. And uh, Doug's going to talk about uh, what the ground forces ought to do and how they should restructure for it. Uh, So with that, I will uh, turn the mic over to Winslow. Thanks very much, Ben. Yep, here it comes. I was wondering where that was going to be. Um, I want to express my appreciation to Cato for doing this. Um, I have a lot of respect for the excellent work uh, Cato does on national security issues, and it's a real privilege for me to be here. And um, thanks to all of you for coming. Um, This is my self-promotion. We don't need to spend too much time there. I'm going to talk about the defense budget and what it is and where it is and what it's bought for us. Um, This slide is pretty simple. Notice on uh, your right-hand side, we're now at a post-World War II high in terms of spending. 
Those are inflation-adjusted dollars. Those are DOD numbers. We're now above the Korea, Vietnam, and Reagan peaks, respectively. The horizontal line uh, is the average Cold War spending. We're astronomically above that. Note also that the conflict we're fighting now is a fraction in terms of deployed forces uh, compared to either Korea or Vietnam. Here's how we compare to the rest of the world. It's no longer true that we spend more than the rest of the world. The data from the International Institute of Strategic Studies in London and CIPRI in Stockholm on uh, the left is their latest publicly available. Um, where we approximate what the rest of the world spends, uh, but we don't now exceed it. Uh, that stumpy little column is the CIA's numbers for the rest of the world. Um, they took that off their website last year. Um, I'm not quite sure why. And it's, uh, Last I checked last week, it's still not there. Um, I guess they found their numbers in, embarrassingly not threat inflating. Um, taking the biggest numbers available of the bad people, um, here's how we compare. Um, the numbers for China, I've seen half that much. Um, there may be newer numbers, higher, but in any case, it's about that $120 billion per year. The Russia number is almost undoubtedly lower now, given the collapse of the price of oil and the inflation in the ruble and its exchange rate, um, but that's also the highest number I could find for Russia. Uh, Cuba, Iran, North Korea basically don't count in terms of dollars spent. Add them all together, you get that uh, small thing on the, on, on the right. Um, in other words, um, add up all the bad guys, and I'm not saying it's logical to think that we should be preparing for a war against China or Russia. Um, but add them all up in any case, and you get less than one-third of our annual spending. Um, either Obama rates <clears throat> or George Bush rates. Here's some gross approximations of what we've been buying for this large and uh, historically high amount of spending. On the um, left-hand side, our Army division equivalents uh, compared to the Army's budget since World War II. The computer picked trend lines. Um, we are quite literally getting a smaller Army for a post-World War II high in terms of spending. Um, then the plan is to increase this a bit hasn't shown up yet in the Army's uh, deployed brigades data, but if it does, it'll go up to about there. Um, but the dollar amounts, in, again in real dollar, DOD dollars, will continue to increase. Same thing in the Navy. Um, smallest Navy we've had since the 30s. Um, at a uh, level of spending that's over time been increasing, we're not now at a post-World War high, but we're marginally above the trend line. 
Air Force story is a little bit more confused, um, but the inventory is way down. Um, again, post-World War II low in terms of um, uh, deployed wings of um, tactical aircraft. Um, the uh, data on the right is probably an overcount, and the data on the left is probably an undercount. But nonetheless, um, the historic trend is there. Uh, we're currently above the historic norm in terms of Air Force spending. Here's another measure of what we're getting for the money. The bottom half is numbers of, in this case, Army ground combat vehicles. The red line on the top half is the average age of the inventory. A couple of things I'd like to explain about this chart from the Congressional Budget Office. These are data here. This is a projection into the future. There's one thing you know about the accuracy of this projection. We know it's not accurate. Um, um, it never turns out this good. Call this, if you want, a fantasy. This over here, this shouldn't be here. This is delusion. <laughs> Note, however, that in terms of vehicles acquired and their age, if everything goes perfectly, not a single cost overrun, get all the numbers you thought you were going to get, if everything goes perfectly, it all gets worse. In terms of inventory and its age. <clears throat> Basically the same thing in the Navy, This plan here for Navy shipbuilding is totally blown up. Um, but again, note, if it all goes perfectly, we get older, and according to this, about the same size, marginal increases, that's not going to happen. The Air Force is the worst at this, maybe the best. Um, Again, everything goes perfectly. We get smaller and older. In the fantasy stage, this solves everything. Forget that. This program, the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35, is falling apart. That's not going to happen. It's going to get worse. There's other measures of readiness, um, numbers of... of personnel in the active duty armed forces, etc. It all shows the same thing. We get worse as we pay more money. Question is, what do we do about it? Um, in our book, uh, we try to come up with some pretty specific ideas about how to address these things. Um, in each case, in each chapter, each arm of uh, the armed forces and so on, we address it. Um, for these budget issues, I won't dwell on all of this, perhaps we can talk about it, but let's just pick a couple of the things up here. First of all, since the um, war has started, uh, since 2001, uh, we have not just given um, the Department of Defense an additional $850 billion to fight the wars, we've also given it, given it an additional $770 billion for the base, so-called non-war part of the Pentagon budget. 
Um, that additional money has resulted in the trends of an aging, shrinking, less ready to fight force accelerating. So how do we turn this around? Uh, a minor part of the blown money is about 60 to 80 billion dollars that Congress added to defense bills for pork. If you look at how they paid for it, a large amount of the money they added in the R&D and procurement budgets came out of the O&M budget. Um, a lot of that coming out of training, depot maintenance, that kind of stuff, shows you their priorities. Congress pretended to reform pork um, in 2007 when the Democrats took over. Congress did no such thing. Um, they pretended that they adopted transparency. Um, imagine, if you will, the transparency you get when the advocate of the earmark gets to be the person who describes to you what it is and what it will do. Um, if OJ were a, uh, a member of Congress, um, he'd have an earmark and he explained that, you know, no, he didn't kill his wife. Um, the, the rules that Congress has used, including the rules by most of the so-called um, pork busters on Capitol Hill, are com useless and phony. Uh, got us nowheres, as you recently witnessed in the um, omnibus um, that President Obama just signed into law, uh, roughly about 8,000 earmarks in it. Um, there are ways around this. There's a, there are ways to figure out what earmarks make sense, what earmarks don't make sense, and how to award them. It's pretty simple. Uh, you get an estimate from the Congressional Budget Office about what it'll cost. You get an evaluation from GAO or some independent entity about whether there is really a problem to be solved and whether your idea will actually solve that problem. And if you make it over those two hoops, compete the award when you, you, know, when you, when you put the earmark in your committee report. Um, it's the way Congress is supposed to behave when it legislates and when it exercises oversight. Um, one problem with my idea about this is that when uh, Congressman Marty Meehan wants to add a few million dollars for Army winter gear, happens to be produced in a, by a manufacturer in and close to his district, that award could go to somebody else, and he could find himself in the embarrassing situation of getting somebody else's congressional district some extra money, they're not particularly interested in that. Uh, and worst of all, the campaign contribution that results from the manufacturer getting that earmark would go to the wrong member of Congress. Couldn't possibly do that. Um, there are ways to address the Department of Defense's problems. Um, we talk about it at great length in this book. The most important thing, I believe, about solving some of these fundamental problems is the people we appoint to make these decisions. Um, these, the problems we've had come from Democrats, Republicans, in the Pentagon, in Congress, in the White House, moderates, liberals, conservatives, all of them have contributed to the problems we're experiencing now.
Um, we need to find people of, uh, to make these decisions in the Pentagon who've demonstrated in their track record that they're able to make an informed and ethical decision. I frankly believe we're, I'm not optimistic that we're about to go down that road. I'll put it that way. Um, one of the most important elements of a system that acts better is a sense amongst people making these decisions that somebody's standing over their shoulder looking at what they're doing. We don't have that sense now. We don't have that sense in, from OSD, and we certainly don't have that sense in Congress. Congress has forgotten how to do oversight. Um, you have hearings these days that are called oversight hearings. You get no such thing. You get members reading off questions, sometimes in a huffy tone of voice, um, getting an answer that if they knew their subject matter, they appreciate as complete baloney. But do they ask the appropriate follow-up? No. They read off the next staff-drafted question, uh, sometimes in an even more huffy voice. Um, it's really pretty pitiful. Um, when I first came to Congress, I saw some real oversight. Um, for instance, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, involving the Indochina War, that kind of activity by Congress is, is it's almost inconceivable that they would do it now, given the incentives that our, you know, our current members of Congress have and how they express their sense of priorities and incentives in their day-to-day -day business on Capitol Hill. Um, I'm going to stop there, and I appreciate your attention. Not so fancy, so I don't need the high tech. If you want to, do you need me to do anything with this? No, it's fine. Thank you very much for inviting me to come. Let me put this somewhere other than uh, speak at this really important uh, conversation. I think I was invited to speak to be the the optimist to counter Winslow. Um, <laughs> I, I was literally, I came to Washington raised at the knee of the military reform giants. I came as an intern to the Project on Military Procurement in 1983, and have been a student of this process um, ever since. So what were the important elements back then that, that made that such an important and successful uh, effort? First, there was this small bipartisan cadre of members of Congress that had terrific staff, Back then it was uh, Senator Grassley, uh, Senator David Pryor, current uh, Pryor's father, uh, then Congresswoman Barbara Boxer and Denny Smith. Uh, this was during the Reagan Cold War buildup. And even still, that group was able to successfully uh, create a defense budget freeze, which is really hard to imagine during that time that it was accomplished. It's almost unthinkable now given that Congress is sort of fancying weapons programs as sort of party favors to, to hand out. During those years, the Bradley fighting vehicle was made safer. The M1 tank was more made more reliable. The Competition and Contracting Act was passed, and they created the Independent uh, 
Operational Test and Evaluation Office. The second element that was essential was uh, that those leaders at, on the Hill were informed by Pentagon Underground. Uh, it's a league of insiders who really believe that Pentagon spending was about national defense and strategic priorities. And I'm honored today to be really on the panel with one of those uh, insiders. Winslow was, was at the time. You were actually, that was when you were both a staffer for Kassenbaum and Pryor. So this means he was literally working for a Democrat and Republican at the same time, which I can't, it's certainly unimaginable also now for that to happen. Uh, finally, during that time, the contracting system was at least transparent enough that we could find the $7,600 coffee pot and the $436 hammer. Um, that's no longer possible. The reinventing government efforts of the 90s, those reforms, which were intended in theory, to rid the excessive red tape of um, government contracting, swung the pendulum so far that created these endless exceptions to the rules that really got rid of uh, important transparency and accountability provisions. So can we recreate the halcyon days of military reform now? And I think the cards are stacked against us. So we now have members of Congress who are comfortable pretending that their parochial interests are really fueled by their concerns for the troops. We recently had 44 senators in nearly half the House writing a letter to President Obama insisting that he buy more F-22s. This is a more than $350 million per copy plane that both the current and former Secretary of Defense said is irrelevant to national defense. Now, how often is a SECDEF saying that? And, and they're still pushing for it. No matter how technically capable those aircraft may be, they are so expensive that we can only buy a few of them. And that's exactly what Winslow was showing us, is this absolute trade-off. In more bad news, and I'm the optimist, uh, yesterday the GAO said that the Joint Strike Fighter is on pace, the DOD is on pace to buy 360 Joint Strike Fighters before completing developmental testing of that program. It's really awful. <laughs> um, the, the Pentagon underground, those insiders, really barely has a pulse. Those inside the Pentagon who had the background or the inclination to challenge the status quo have really been squeezed out, sending a signal throughout that building that you shut up or you're not going to go up, you're going to be out. And finally, the fact that we aren't hearing about those overpriced spare parts anymore isn't because they aren't happening. And remember, weapon systems are just a collection of overpriced spare parts flying in close formation. The reason we focused on spare parts in those days was because people understand how much a coffee pot should cost, and we don't understand intuitively how much a weapon should cost, a weapon system. We're not hearing about them because we can no longer see those cost and pricing data. And by we... I mean, government auditors, not just us, don't have access to that information anymore to find those overcharges. So that's the kind of mentality that led to the idea of buying both the C-17 and the C-130J cargo plane as commercial items, as though there had been free market forces that were determining those prices. But how many of you have found military cargo planes at your Walmart? I mean, there isn't a commercial market that's determining those prices. But those are the kinds of contracts the Pentagon has been um, encouraged to use and has been using to buy weapon systems. 
those contracts were going to cost us as taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars more than they should have until they were exposed and stopped. In the case of the C-17, it was Pogo in a report. In the case of the C-130J, it was Senator McCain. Another example of this new world order of contracting in, in defense um, um, uh, programs is the concept of just turning over governmental functions to contractors like overseeing weapons programs. And a great example of that is the catastrophe of the Coast Guard's deep water program. In the case of the C-17, while we were able to fix how we bought the C-17, the Congress, we, we still weren't able to fix the fact that what we were buying there. The Congress still forced additional C-17s down the throat of the Pentagon, uh, continuing this practice of screwing up what we buy. So for two, nearly two decades... Really, no one has held up the banner in the Congress and in, in political leadership to try to recreate where we need to go. But I think there's a hint of hope. This is the optimism part. Senator Claire McCaskill and Senator Tom Coburn both seem to be both willing and able to challenge the way Washington has been doing business. And they're both comfortable telling it like it is, and they've got great staff. We're still waiting to see... see we're still waiting to see some of that kind of leadership in the House. But we're getting signs that maybe it's there. President Obama, as Ben mentioned earlier, did give a speech specifically targeting the failures of Pentagon procurement, although it really does remain to be seen whether his current and future appointees are going to be up to the task. So what needs to happen? There needs to be fundamental reform on two fronts. And I mentioned these concepts before. It's both what we buy and how we buy. So these issues are related, but they're distinct. So on what we buy, we must prevent the Pentagon from buying and building weapons with immature and unproven technology. This is really where our money and time is lost. I agree with Cato's writings that we should stop shooting for the totally transformational technologies, as though the sky's the limit and there are no boundaries uh, in terms of, of cost or technology. We also need to be constantly aware that for every gee whiz concept, we have to make sure it works before we're committed to it. And we need to remember, as Winslow was showing us, that there's an inverse relationship between cost and the numbers deployed. We need not to allow weapon systems to get waivers, which is what happens constantly, so that they speed into production prematurely and become politically fireproof. Fire, fire the recently introduced Levin-McCain legislation that Winslow had mentioned, and I think Ben did as well, is aimed at more clearly boxing in the major defense acquisition programs on these fronts. To me, the real weakness is that it relies on the Congress to be the serious overseer, but it's not. And that's where the tough decisions need to be made, and they're not being made by the Congress, and it's not forcing the Pentagon to do it on its own. So the second half on how to buy, we don't need new rules. And I don't think that's what President Obama's speech was suggesting that we need. We just need to get rid of all the games that have been created over the past 20 years to get around the rules. We need to avoid these risky, risky transactions like time and material and labor hour contracts. It's such a boring, arcane world of government contracting. Other transaction authority. These things were all created, honestly, to create a system where government auditors and the public didn't have the ability to audit or even access cost and pricing data. We need to recognize that a contractor's bottom line is and should be their bottom line and stop relying on them to be promoting the public interest. 
We need instead government officials who are overseeing those weapons programs whose bottom line is the best interest of the troop and the taxpayer rather than who their next job or campaign contribution is coming from. There is hope on the horizon, although the landscape is much harder than it was in the 80s. In the end, I think there's three fundamental changes that will help those two systems. The first is we have to stop allowing the ramping up of production of weapons system, which includes the political juggernaut of jobs in every congressional district, until after the weapons technology is proven through operational test and evaluation. That's something that Chuck Spinney, who's a great thinker in this field, has written extensively on. And if you haven't read any of his work, you really must read it to understand that that's how weapons systems are engineered now, is you make it so for... Um, it's too early to tell what's going on with the weapons system, and you get it spread into all the congressional districts, and then it's too late to do anything about it. Um, the second major reform is we have to get back to an arm's-length relationship between the government and the defense industry, rather than the current relationship where all their arms and legs, arms and legs are wrapped around each other in a tender embrace. And uh, finally, we need to reject the notion that the only qualified people to be appointed to positions of power are those who come from the defense acquisition world. Uh, those are the people who got us here. And I would argue, Winslow and I were talking just earlier, that the people in the front of the book, Acquisition, um, I'm sorry, D America's Defense Meltdown, you've got a list of people who should be getting calls from the White House asking if they're interested in, in serving their country in this way because it's the people who are trying to fix the problem who should be uh, in those roles, not those who've been a part of the problem. So I have a hope we can get there, but I think all of us who care about this don't have time to rest. I mean, I think this is the time where we can make change, but we need to be heard uh, and, and not sit on the, on the sidelines. Hi, I'm Tom Ricks. Can you all hear me in the cheap seats? Okay. <clears throat> Oddly enough, I'm going to talk about a successful instance of reform, uh, but one that I think has not gone far enough. This is what happened in Iraq over the last couple of years. When the U.S. military finally began to adjust and operate effectively on the ground in the Iraq war. A lot of this is covered in my new book, The Gamble, but I'll give you a quick summary of a couple of the things, the major points about this change. It has to do with how to successfully carry out a counterinsurgency campaign. The first instance of this, of a sustained successful counterinsurgency campaign in Iraq, was in the northwestern city of Talafar, or Talafar, um, people refer to it both ways. Uh, it's west of Mosul, not far from the Syrian border. In 2005, the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, under the command of Colonel H.R. McMaster, moved into Talafar and began to operate very differently from how other units had operated there and elsewhere in Iraq for the previous two years. Colonel H.R. McMaster sat down with his troops before they deployed and began to talk about a different relationship between American forces and Iraqi people. The first thing he said was, don't do anything that creates more enemies than it stops. And he talked to them about counterinsurgency in a way that any 20-year-old infantryman could grasp. He said, show a little respect. 
Treat these people like you would want to be treated. Listen to Iraqis. This was a real difference in how to operate. The second thing he did was move his troops off a big forward operating base and out into the city. Talafar is a city of about 250,000 people. He had a sufficient number of troops, once he was given an additional battalion of the 82nd Airborne, to come in and have interlocking outposts across the city that all had line of sight with each other. So he could overwatch the entire city pretty effectively, along with Iraqi forces, whom he was also overwatching. This did a couple of things. It meant that rather than be on patrol for one hour a day in a neighborhood, leaving it to somebody else for the other 23 hours a day, they were present for 24 hours a day. When you are present, you can react more quickly, and over time, you become more familiar with the neighborhood. You develop a sense of what's normal and what's not, of whether a truck comes there every day or whether that truck has never been in that corner before. Eventually, with some luck, people also will start talking to you, and you can start learning about how the place operates. I'm sorry. Um, This was not unique. Also, under the Marines, Lieutenant Colonel Dale Alford had a smaller but similar experiment in the town of Al-Qaim, also up near the Syrian border. He had an interesting exchange one day with a senior officer in Iraq who was very impressed by his operation. Alford said, General, you you like what I'm doing here. Why don't you do more of this elsewhere in Iraq? And the senior officer shook his head and said the division commanders wouldn't go for it which to me is an astonishing answer and probably a good argument for the removal of subdivision commanders. Then, in 2006, a brigade of the 1st Armored Division under Colonel Sean McFarland was moved into Ramadi. Now, interestingly, they had first been up in Talafar with Colonel McMaster's unit where where they replaced them, and they'd gotten an, an intense education in counterinsurgency, how to conduct it, how to be present among the population, how to work with people. Colonel McFarland told me that when he moved into Ramadi in early 06, he said to himself, every brigade that has served here has lost 100 soldiers. If I'm going to lose 100 soldiers by the end of this year, I want something to show for it. And really, kind of on his own, he began operating very differently. He began cutting deals with the local tribes. Now, it was fortunate that the local tribes were ready to cut some deals because they were getting very upset with al-Qaeda. He began to arm and pay Iraqis, including some former insurgents. He began to work with the sheikhs, and this was very successful. And the third time proved to be a charm. When General Petraeus and General Odierno arrived in Iraq at the end of 06 and in early 07, one of the first stops each of them made was Ramadi, where they went out to see what McFarland was up to. It was inexplicable to me that until that point, senior commanders had not really looked at these three successful experiments and asked themselves the key question, can this be replicated in Baghdad? It tended to be dismissed. No, 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 those places are places out of themselves. Circumstances in Baghdad are different. Couldn't possibly do it. And it is true. For example, there were no real Shiites really present in Ramadi. And so Baghdad was different. But with a little imagination, perseverance, and hard work, the experiment could be replicated. By the time Petraeus and Odierno started doing this, however, in Baghdad in the spring of 2007, the United States had been fighting in Iraq longer than it fought in World War II. And that is a hell of a commentary on the adjustability of the U.S. military. Yes, they did change, but it took them an agonizingly long time to change. 
why this is, is what I want to talk about now. I think of this as the 4P problem at the Pentagon. Peacetime processes persisting at the Pentagon. A sense that we are not really at war. The nation as a whole is not at war, nor is a big part of the Pentagon. Not just the Navy and the Air Force, which seemed to be thinking they weren't at war, but to a surprising degree, the Army. For years, the Army tended to see Iraq as an irritant that really had nothing to do with what their job really was about. One of the signs of this was that for several years, there seemed to be no relationship between battlefield performance in Iraq and one's future career prospects. That is to say, battlefield success was not rewarded. In World War II, I will tell you, at this point, Colonel H.R. McMaster would, have be, would be a major general. He would be finishing division command and about to take corps command. During World War II, 17 division commanders were relieved in combat. During World War II, people were held accountable. As Lieutenant Colonel Paul Yingling has written, in Iraq, a private who loses his M16 is punished more than a general who loses a war. There is no accountability. There was no accountability for several years. That began to change only when President Bush found his back to the wall in November 06, losing the midterm elections, and began to stop acting as the cheerleader-in-chief for the war and start acting as the commander-in-chief. By that, I mean he started asking tough questions of his generals. Hey, General Casey, you've done this, you, you followed the strategy all of 06, and Iraq has gone down the tubes. And your answer is, let's persist in this strategy. And in fact, at the end of the gamble, I reprint two orders. The order that General Casey gave to General Odierno when he arrived in Iraq at the end of 06. And it's quite striking. It says explicitly, move your troops onto big bases, move them out of the cities, seal the borders, and protect the lines of communication. General Odierno decided he didn't want to lose the war on his watch and rewrote that order. So when General Petraeus arrived, the order he approved said, move your troops off big bases into the cities, drop the idea of transition to Iraqi forces as your top priority, and instead protect the Iraqi people. And that was key, protect the Iraqi people. That is the key to the surge, not putting more troops out. Putting more troops out was a consequence of having to protect the people because it takes more troops. So, why is it that it took the U.S. military so long to adjust? Here, oddly enough, I end where Winslow Wheeler ended. People. There is a lack of agility in the institution, but I think this goes to the lack of agility in the type of people that we have selected as general officers. They are company men. They are conformist. And it's unfair and also unreasonable to expect somebody who for 25 years has been re rewarded for conformism upon, um, upon becoming a general officer to start acting in an innovative and even disruptive fashion. Now, I hear you say, but what about Petraeus? He's been pretty successful. Petraeus is an outlier in the U.S. military, along the lines of Doug, I would say, as well, though I see some head shaking over there. <laughs> Petraeus likes reporters. He likes politicians and he has a Ph.D. from Princeton. In the U.S. Army, that's three strikes. On top of that, he had a successful first combat command tour in Iraq when he had the 101st Airborne Division in northern Iraq in 0304. And that was unforgivable, to have a successful tour and make everybody else look bad. 
So how do you get a different sort of general officer? That is the key, I think, and I don't really have good answers for it. I'm not sure how we get from here to there, but I think that's where success lies, getting a more flexible, agile institution, people who just don't give lip service to it but actually are. And now I will finish there and let Doug denounce me. Yeah, return the screen, people. Uh, we're doing it. I'm not going to denounce uh, Tom Ricks, <clears throat> but it'll be clear that we're probably on somewhat different planets. <laughs> I would never denounce you. <laughs> uh, I've got three slides. By the way, I've got a much longer brief, and for those of you that want to punish yourselves and go through it, I've got copies on CDs up here if you want them after it's over. So, first slide, can we get it up there? Try pushing the down button. Which one is that? On the right-hand side. Here? No, no, right-hand side. Here? Here? I think if you just hit it. Oh, okay, good. Where's mine? I got it. Uh, I can get mine again. Now, if you look carefully at this slide, you'll discover a couple of things. First and foremost, I'm a Monty Python fan. And uh, I didn't intend it to turn out this way, but you are about to get something completely different. Uh, these are new planning assumptions for defense planners in the Pentagon uh, that I think will stretch out over the next five to ten years. Remember that the American ship of state is essentially a broken battleship that steers with great difficulty, takes a long time to turn. Uh, I think we are turning. In contrast to a lot of people that think we're at the beginning of something, I think we are at the end of something. An end of a long period that actually began with Les Aspen's testimony in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee in 1992 when he was announced as uh, President Clinton's Secretary of uh, Defense. And he was asked, Mr. Aspen, in the absence of any existential threat to the United States, the collapse of the Soviet military establishment, what is the mission of the United States Armed Forces? And without hesitation, Les Aspen said, to punish evildoers. And I think we began a trip down this morally self-justifying road that is appealing to many people on the right and on the left for different reasons, that was then subsequently reinforced by Madeleine Albright, who described us as the indispensable nation the nation that presumably has all of the answers for everyone else's problems and has this military establishment that can be used now without restraint anywhere at once to rectify all of the things that we don't like in regions, countries, states, and places where there are internal difficulties. I think that period is coming to an end. There are a couple of reasons why I think it's coming to an end. The first, of course, is economic. Now, I, I have to concede that I do probably find Rubini more persuasive than most economists. However, I do agree with John Kenneth Galbraith, who says that economists exist to make astrologers look competent and professional. <laughs> so I, I don't want to hang my hat too much on economists, but I think we're in a lot of trouble. I think we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I think the pressure on this administration uh, over the next several years to harvest more and more funds from the Department of Defense uh, that would have otherwise been committed to ventures much like Iraq and uh, uh, Afghanistan and the Balkans and Somalia and Haiti and so forth is going to be overwhelming. 
we are actually going to, at some point, have to cut spending as opposed to simply print or borrow money. And there's a second part of this, and that is that the American electorate is not really interested in any of this. You know, one of the things that is always ignored in the discussion of counterinsurgency successes in Iraq is the enormous amount of cash that we have been passing out to all of the people who were formerly shooting at us. Hundreds of millions of dollars. The famous sheikhs of Anbar who met with President Bush a couple of years ago are now multimillionaires. They benefit from direct payments, they benefit from contracts, and we have essentially given them what they wanted in 2003, which was in addition to money, local autonomy and independence. These kinds of deals that we've cut that have been so successful could have been cut in 2003 and we could have gotten out of the place. It's taken us years to come around to this. But it is a dangerous, deluding statement to think that Muslim populations anywhere want U.S. or British conventional forces in great numbers inside their country. They do not. They want us out of Iraq today. The Afghans want us out. We are dealing with hostile populations. They will certainly take whatever we are passing out. They will try to use and employ us in any way they can for their own specific purposes in the struggle for power internal to their respective society. But the bottom line is they want us out. We need to understand that. It is not just Muslims. The entire non-European world does not want us to police, govern, and administer their countries, even if our own armed forces are dramatically better, more honest, more capable, and more competent than their own. So I think we're at the end of this process. I think the American people instinctively understand it, and I think as time goes on and more and more people are unemployed, questions are going to be raised. How do we justify passing out hundreds of millions of dollars to hundreds of thousands of Sunni Arabs who were formerly shooting at us, and at the same time, we are not adequately supporting Americans who are in far greater need here at home? So these are my uh, defense planning assumptions for the future. Uh, one thing that I, I'll point to on the slide that I think is very, very important. Most of what's going to happen in the 21st century doesn't necessarily need to involve us. Future wars are going to resemble, I think, the Balkan Wars of the early 1900s, only this time there'll be a lot of competition for resources, water, food, mineral, and the wealth that those things confer. You have the legacies of imperialism that are going to continue to plague us in places like Georgia and elsewhere, but we don't necessarily have to be directly involved. We have an advantage. We are an island. Homeland defense is going to become a bigger issue, and when it comes to the question and answer period, I hope somebody asks me about the Caribbean Basin, because I can tell you right now that what is developing in the Caribbean Basin, Venezuela, Colombia, Central America, Mexico, the nexus of criminality, organized crime, and terrorism is frightening. It's not getting enough attention and it poses an infinitely greater threat to anything we think exists today in northern Pakistan or anywhere else. Which one do I hit for the slide now? Down. Okay. Now, changes in 21st century warfare. I apologize. It's a busy, busy slide. You will notice that I am not using terms such as irregular or hybrid. All of this stuff sort of takes me back to the mid-1980s when I was teaching at West Point, and then Major Petraeus was talking about low... Uh, low-intensity conflict is a quote-unquote growth industry, and we were building forces for intervention in Latin America, which I thought was ridiculous. What can we really say about warfare? Set aside all these things. We've had irregulars and hybrids and God knows what else for the past several thousand years. 
the first thing we can say is that this whole business, this whole structure that is the foundation for our ground force is gone. The notion of any kind of continuous front in linear warfare. The organizational structures associated with that, the career patterns that have grown up since 1945, all of that is gone. Some of the things that Tom Ricks was talking about are bound up with the structure. The culture rests on the foundation of this structure. Culture reflects how you think about warfare. It tells you how you organize. It tells you how you think about fighting. The whole structure needs to go. It's anachronistic. It's antiquated. It should have gone years ago. It should go now. Mobile dispersed warfare is dominant. Why? Well, strike capabilities. And we're not the only ones with strike capabilities. We just happen to have an enormous advantage in it right now. But the bottom line is that neither we nor anybody else is going to concentrate large numbers of ground forces in the future. To do so risks annihilation. The enemies that we might face are not foolish. They're not going to do it. And remember, we haven't faced an enemy with an army, an air force, a navy, an air defense complex. Nothing for years. Nothing. We're facing the weakest enemies in many cases we've ever faced in our history. We've bankrupted ourselves in the process. Now, WMD is going to proliferate, whether we like it or not. We're going to have to deal with it. These have implications for how you organize to fight, how you equip, what you do with your conventional force structure. And future conflicts are not going to resemble Iraq. We're not going to repeat it. I haven't talked to a single member in the House of Representatives, Democrat or Republican, that thinks we should go back and do this again. Nobody. He says, God, preserve us. No. I think what you're going to see increasingly are what I call high-impact, low-footprint operations. Similar to what you saw in Somalia a couple of years ago, where you have air and naval power backing up uh, a small number of special operations teams from the United States on the ground, working with some indigenous forces who at least temporarily share our interest, and together we destroy our mutual enemies. You're going to see that from time to time, but you are not going to see the introduction of massive numbers of conventional combat forces into the non-European world. It's not going to happen. Lastly, technologies are going to drive some new changes. Directed energy is developing at a pace that very few people appreciate. When you start looking at things like the F-22, the possibility exists by 2020, the F-22 flies someplace and suddenly loses a wing and can't figure out where the wing went because of directed energy. That's how rapid the pace of development is in that area. It's going to have an impact on how we do business on the ground as well as in the air and at some point also at sea. Hafnium, that's an interesting isotope. I urge you to Google it. Uh, right now, hafnium is in a state of development very similar to the atom bomb in the early 1920s. It's only a matter of time until that isotope becomes weaponized. That's going to have a profound impact on the way we do business. On the right-hand side are a series of characteristics and features, and Tom's already talked about some of them. You've got to have a merit-based system. You've got, you've got to pick people on the basis of demonstrated character, competence, and intelligence, not because everybody likes them not because they fit in culturally. And at the bottom of the thing, the capacity for unconstrained thinking, that's, that's got to exist from top to bottom. It's absolutely absent. Last slide. What is to be done? And this is really the chapter that's in the defense meltdown that uh, uh, Wynne has edited that, that I urge you to look at, and not just my chapter, but all of them. What we did is we said, listen, what are we going to do? We've got a Marine Corps that is much more likely to be used the way the United States Army is being used. The probability of reenacting a World War II amphibious landing is almost non-existent. 
And if you had to come ashore someplace and the enemy knew you were coming, coming, he would mine the waters and make it extremely difficult to come ashore. So if you do come ashore, you're going to have to come ashore a long distance from your operational objective. People forget that we did not land on the shores of northern Germany. We landed in northern France. And then we had to march across the continent to get into Germany. That is typical for future operations that are going to involve any sizable conventional force contingent. So that contingent is going to have to be much more mobile. It's going to need much more firepower, much more protection, and more armor. Lethality is rising. We have faced the weakest enemy that probably we will see for the future. Uh, what do we do? Strategically, we've got to go after the enormous overhead that is a legacy of the Cold War. Uh, we right now have one um, uh, U.S. Army general officer roughly for every battalion that we've got in uh, Iraq sitting in Baghdad. I mean, the overhead is staggering. The numbers of generals and staffs and, and what they accomplish I, you know, is, is beyond my imagination. I don't see much evidence for it. Uh, we're going to have to go back and reevaluate lots of these big ticket items from the, from the Cold War, but that doesn't mean that everything in the past is bad. Uh, some of you may recollect that back in uh, 1998, 99, it was vogue for everybody to run around and call tanks the, the buggy whip technology of the 21st century. If you took the armor that is in Iraq out of Iraq, you would lose instantly. You'd have nothing to guarantee your survival. You could, we have taken control of that country, and we have relied very heavily on that armor to give us that kind of control. Petraeus will tell you that. And he was the light infantryman of the 1980s that used to rail against me because I urged armor. You've got to close down these redundant fixed overseas bases. The population under 50 in the Republic of Korea does not want our forces in that country. They would prefer that we left. By the way, we're still occupying the former headquarters of the Imperial Japanese Army in downtown Seoul. Talk about a monumentally stupid thing to do. Uh, we need to deflate the rank structure. We've got too many people, too many generals, too few troops that actually deploy and fight. Operational. We've got to integrate the operational command and control. This business of jointness is a phony band-aid. You have an Army headquarters, a Marine headquarters, whatever it happens to be, and then people show up who are effectively liaison officers from other forces. You've got, to re you've got to organize the force differently around maneuver, strike, intelligence, information, surveillance, reconnaissance, and uh, sustainment. You've got to get away from the single-service form of warfare, the single-service thinking. Each service does its own thing, fights its own independent war. There's no difference, it, really, in the fundamental structure and conduct of operations in, 19, or in 2003 from the way it was in 1991, or for that matter, the way it was in 1944 and 45. And finally, tactically, you know, you've got to have a new organization for combat. We're still wedded to divisions and corps. What, what I thought was very interesting is a, a, a former uh, Brigade 3 from southern uh, Anbar province who came to see me recently talked about the fact that he had 11 battalions under his brigade. And he said, you know, fortunately, we don't have a, a real enemy. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, these people can't maneuver against us. He said, we're, you know, we're paying them lots of money, so they're, they're having, drinking tea with us, and they're nice to us. We all know what the truth is. But the bottom line is we all already know where they are, and if we have to go out and get them, we can. And he said, so I, I could kind of manage this. He said, but this would never work in a war. He said, what we need is the kind of organizational structure that you've outlined for years. We need the staff structures and the capabilities, the depth, the command at a lower level than where it is today. 
I don't know how many officers I talk to on a routine basis, whether you are an advocate for counterinsurgency or you think, as I do, that this is a dangerous illusion and we should not engage in that sort of thing in other people's countries. It doesn't make any difference. The outcome, organizationally, is the same. And you've got to get rid of this very, very lethargic, anachronistic, backward Cold War force structure in the Army and the Marine Corps. And they've got to be integrated. And these things have to happen, by the way, before you start adding more troops to the existing structure. Because the generals will simply try to fill the holes in the structure they've already got. They're not interested, really, in fundamentally changing anything. Remember that the service bureaucracies are all about survival. What's in it for them? Career patterns and general officer billets and absolute control over the promotion system from within. No interference from those problematic civilians who might otherwise take an interest. All the services are similar. None of them are uniquely worse or better than the other. But in the ground force, we've got a real challenge for the future because the future is going to be very different from the immediate past. And that, more than anything else, is the message I want to leave you with. Don't get caught up in the past right now. And start to think carefully about your air and naval power because as we withdraw, the air and naval forces that you've got are going to end up being your forward force being the base from which you project your influence ashore for brief periods, because we are not going to garrison the world. We can't afford it, and the world doesn't want it. Thank you. All right. Um, uh, it remains uh, now to you, the audience, uh, to ask questions that will unify these uh, terrific but somewhat disparate uh, threads that we have here. Uh, w when you ask a question, uh, please identify yourself. Uh, if we could avoid speeches, that would be terrific. Uh, and uh, you can address uh, either individuals or the groups. It's up to you. Uh, and we got mics. Uh, yes, sir, right here. Yeah, wait for the mic, please. That's the other. My name is Jerry Murnane. I'm a private citizen with no axe to grind. I have two quick questions, one for Mr. Ricks and one for Ms. Bryant. Mr. Ricks, in talking about the, the activity with the tribal leaders, uh, the new strategy that was quite successful, in reading some articles about it, uh, they mentioned they were paid and so forth, but that started tapering out, and they found a new secret weapon to entice these old fellows, many of whom had many wives, and it was Viagra. <laughs> eminently successful, I read. Any comment on that? Was that true? I, I read the same article. It was about Afghanistan, not about Iraq, though. Okay. Ms. Bryant, uh, I think you mentioned, or it's, you know, it's <clears throat> commonly thought that the F-22 is pretty much the most expensive airplane ever designed and built. I read recently that that's not true, that the Marine One force for the White House has to be replaced. They're flying 30-year-old helicopters, they now want to increase from, I think, 16 to 28. Right. The cost has gone, it's like a 10-year period from $6 billion to $12 billion, which puts that at a cost of $400 million per aircraft. That's right. Any opinion on that and your reform? They both should be at the top of the list of things that we stop before we kill again. I mean, we just have to stop that right away, both programs. So what's going to happen there? I am dying to see what's going to happen. Okay. I mean, this is, this is, I think, the first big test of whether President Obama is really going to do what he says he's going to do. Can I? He says he's going to get a hold of, of, of the out-of-control Pentagon spending. Uh, he talks about it running amok. So let's see. <clears throat> Those are two programs that are demonstrably catastrophic, and we just can't afford them. 
Can I can I horn in on that question? Um, the F-22, I think, is a wonderful test case of where the heck we're going to be going. It, on the one hand, Gates has pointed out it hasn't flown a single sortie in Iraq and Afghanistan. Presidents told Congress we're not going to buy any more Cold War weapons, of which the F-22 is the lowest of all the hanging fruit. On the other hand, all the bright minds in the Pentagon are talking about this inspired compromise mm where we buy somewhere between 20 and 60 additional F-22s. Um, we keep Boeing happy with a few additional F-18s, and we pay for it by knocking the F-35 program a little bit to uh, the right on the charts, thereby making it uh, uh, more expensive, delaying the program. That kind of thinking makes everything worse. It doesn't replace the aircraft inventory at the rate it is shrinking and expanding. And contrary to the reputation of the F-22 as a wonder, wonderful fighter, um, it appears to be a real dog. Um, its aerodynamic performance is a huge disappointment, should be vastly better than it is, and its effectiveness in air-to-air -air exercises in the Air Force depends on three phony assumptions. I, I won't go into the details, but there's a real issue whether the F-22 is not just outrageously expensive, the world's most expensive fighter, that it's a piker compared to the B-2 in terms of cost, um, but is a huge disappointment and something that we don't, don't want at any, any cost. The F-35, by the way, the so-called affordable alternative is even worse in terms of performance relies on the phony, same phony scenario for air-to-air -air warfare, and right now is $120 million per airplane, not an affordable price, and that, that price is going to go north fast. Can I say one more thing on that question, or is that, is that okay, Ben? Yes. Um, totally agree with Winslow. It, it'll, it's the coward's way out. If we see one of these deals, like we're talking about with the tanker and all of these where we, everyone gets a piece of the pie, I think that's a coward's way out. But uh, the one point that worries me uh, with Winslow saying it's a bad idea to push the joint strike fighter out, I think actually, and it's Larry Korb, I think the Center for American Progress has really made a, a great rec recommendation on this, that what we need to do is stop making commitments for production on the joint strike fighter until we actually have moved along with testing far enough that we actually know what we're getting and we actually do enough developmental testing and get into operational testing before we make more production. That will save money in the long run. If, uh, I'll be real quick. If the F-35 performs as promised, there's not a single degradation in its performance. It's a dog. Uh, uh, we don't, I mean, we're going to go ahead and test it after we produce about 500 copies of it. Um, but even if you look at the, the numbers for the wing loading, the thrust to weight, the munitions it will carry, and so on, and Jane's, it's a dog. And we have a historic period right now where we don't have any serious Air Force to worry about. Start with a clean piece of paper, beg and plead some of the designers of the F-15, the F-16, the A-10, and the F-18 to help you out um, and start over again on an effective air-to-air -air fighter, which would be a very different airplane from an effective air-to-ground close air support airplane. Let's go to the gentleman right here. Yes, uh, Frank Fletcher. Um, my question, uh, two questions. I'd like to elicit the thinking of the panel on 
the Base Realignment and Closure Commission, which I've always thought should be termed the Base Realignment and New Base Construction Program. It's been enormously costly, and in effect what they've been doing is building new military bases, but they don't call them that because they're being built on existing real estate. It would have been cheaper just to have kept some of the bases. I mean, if you want to cut force structure, that's another issue, but related. And then for Colonel McGregor, how would you counter militarily your recommendation, um, ICBMs or missile threats like emanating from Iran? Anybody want to hit the BRAC question first? On the BRAC, um, I actually have been worried by it for years for a related reason, which is that it seems to me purely tactical but not strategic. I think it should have been much more directed by the Congress than by the military. We have closed almost all our bases on the West Coast and in the Northeast and concentrated them down in the South, uh, partly because that's the cheapest place to operate. Uh, but in a two-career uh, family, which is the norm in the, in the U.S. these days, spouses can't find work in those places. And it was very destructive on how families live and operate. Uh, what you're seeing is a lot of people when they're deployed to Fort Polk or when they're transferred to Fort Polk leave their family in Virginia now uh, because there's just no work for the, a wife who's a lawyer or a banker or something near Fort Polk, Louisiana. Likewise, Fort Bragg is not uh, a particular economically attractive place. Fort Ord, which they closed, is in beautiful Monterey, California, near Silicon Valley. If you're interested in information warfare, it might have been a good base to keep open. Uh, likewise, bases in the Northeast really don't exist anymore, with the exception of Fort Drum in very far northern New York State. Well, I think it's Fort Drum, I think it's farther from New York City than uh, Richmond, Virginia is. So I think we have gone a long way down a path without really understanding what we've been doing, especially with the relationship between the military and the society it protects. If maybe we could generalize the missile question for Doug to talk more, not just about Iran, but about uh, the, the general uh, advances in missile technologies, both maybe crews and, and ballistic missiles, and how they affect uh, fixed forces. Well, first of all, uh, before we go to Iran, I mentioned directed energy. Your best defense against incoming warheads is directed energy. All of your top physicists at MIT, everywhere, have always said this. I mean, this has been the complaint about the enormous billions we've wasted on these national missile defense programs, because we're, we're trying to develop better hit-to-kill technology. It's just too easy to defeat. We've made enormous progress on the theater level, and, and we've got some good technology on the theater level. But on the national level, it's, it's just not attainable. But directed energy will change that. And at some point, I imagine someone will break the laws of fractal mathematics and we'll have energy force fields and, and other things. But that's probably 2050. But certainly between now and 2020, I think you're going to see dramatic advances in directed energy, which will change that equation in some ways. Now, when, when people ask me about Iran, I mean, there's a supposition that Iran is arming itself to the teeth and mobilizing to invade its neighbors or anything else. I mean, I find it very strange. I, d I don't see much evidence for that at all, uh, especially after we spent the last six years establishing Iranian strategic dominance in Iraq. And, and I would argue that the surge, uh, even though the troop surge, I think, was of modest impact. But in Baghdad, I think it had an impact. I think it finished the job in Baghdad and permanently installed Maliki as Iran's man and Iranian strategic dominance in Iraq. And I think that ultimately, strategically, Petraeus will be remembered for that at some point. I think it's a disaster. Uh, I'm for leaving Iraq immediately, and I wish them 
much misery and misfortune in Iraq, our friends in Tehran, okay? And I think the sooner we get the hell out, the more difficult that place will become for Iran. Now, set that aside. <laughs> A Turkish uh, four-star general was asked in private, uh, General, what if Iran gets a nuclear weapon? He said, that's not a problem. Why? He said, because then Turkey will have a nuclear weapon. Really? Well, where will you get it? Oh, Pakistan. Why? Relations between the Pakistanis and the Turks are very close. Uh, Musharraf was a huge admirer of Ataturk and saw himself as being somewhat similar. Uh, the Pakistanis are overwhelmingly Sunni. So are the Turks. You get my drift? Uh, we aren't the only player. We're not the only people with interests. We've got to get out of this business of uh, this myopia of assuming that whatever happens is, is something to do with us. You know, Russia, just to the north of Iran, uh, they would unhesitatingly use a nuclear weapon against Pakistan or Iran if they thought for one second that anything might be targeted against them. We need to wake up. You know, if you look at Afghanistan and, and Pakistan, India, Russia, and Iran have far greater vital strategic interests in those places than we do. So, to be perfectly blunt, I'm not terribly concerned about the, the sort of inflated expectations of Iranian military power. I don't see it. Let's take a question uh, from the lady in the second row in the back with her hand raised really high up there. Yeah. Second one in the back. Yep. Thank you. Uh, this is a question for Colonel McGregor. Oh, that's um, at, sorry. Take the one behind her after that. Well, okay. Um, as a um, mental health clinician provider who's worked with the military, I'm going to get, I want to follow up on your wanting someone to ask you about the current conditions in the Caribbean, the Mexican, the cartels, the illegal uh, drugs and what and illegal crossing the borders since Cato had a discussion about this about a month or so ago with experts saying we need to legalize drugs. The cartels are dangerous, but not really a problem. Um, there is some violence, but we don't really have to worry. So what would be your comments on that, what's happening now in the Caribbean, the cartels in Mexico, the drug uh, issues, and why is it something that we or the military or us have to concern ourselves with uh, at this point in time with other, I don't know about the use of the word crises or explosions in other countries and the Middle East. Well, first of all, I'm glad that you weren't going to question my mental stability. Given no, I'm not going to do that yet. I'm not even going to. I wondered what was coming. Not, I'm not going to do uh, an assessment or DSM-4. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, the, the drug cartels are about making lots of money. Uh, they're part of the problem, but they're not even the most serious one. Uh, they're interested in shipping as much as they possibly can into the United States, helping to cultivate users and make more money. But between the drug cartels in the United States, there is another organized crime structure. It's a transportation structure, which is separate and distinct from the people who actually grow, refine, and then sell us the drugs. This transportation structure is enormous. It moves people. It moves goods. It goes across the sea. It goes overland. They are completely disinterested in, in what they are transporting. Their only interest is in being paid. That's not true for the drug cartels. Listen, the drug cartels want to do business. They're not interested in smuggling a, a small nuclear device or a, a bioterrorist weapon or anything else inside the United States. That would, that would spoil the opportunity. It would hurt the market. So they're not the problem in that sense. 
what the transportation structure is. And in addition to this, you have a, a growing level of cooperation between all sorts of interesting people who have other agendas that are antithetical to our interests. Over the last year, we've been getting thousands and thousands of intercepts coming in from ships at sea, as well as on land in Venezuela, Colombia, Central America, and Mexico, in Farsi, Arabic, Chinese, Russian, go down the list. These people are not necessarily state-sponsored, although there may be some evidence for that. These are simply people who have other agendas. They're keenly interested in the transportation structure. And what concerns us right now are things like these, you may have seen this mentioned in the open press, the semi-submersible. This thing's about 65, 75 feet long. It moves at, you know, 5 to 10 knots. It rides at about 18 inches just above the, the ocean level. It's equipped with modern GPS gear, engines. It can carry thousands of pounds of drugs and narcotics. It's almost undetectable. Uh, it's very difficult to detect. We're working on that. Uh, we perhaps get 20 percent uh, of them. At least we're aware of 20 percent. That's how much more is just moving back and forth. They're making so much money that they can dump these things now. They don't even have to return them. They're washing up empty uh, on the coast of Spain. They're crossing oceans between Hawaii and the United States, back and forth between uh, North America and Europe and Africa. What is coming into this country under the cover of darkness in these things in terms of people and devices is unknown to us. We don't know. Uh, you, could, you could put several people who were just infected with smallpox into these things, disgorge them in San Diego, and they could rent a hotel room in San Diego. And you couldn't distinguish them from any other illegal who might be coming in from Mexico or somewhere else in Latin America. Occasionally, we come up with these people. And if, if someone would declassify some of the information and allow you to know the kinds of people we've apprehended that have come into this country, in most cases almost by accident, who are absolutely not Latinos and Hispanic, but of other origins, it would scare the hell out of you. This is, an, this is an area with enormous potential to do damage to us. The damage we know about already. We know what's happening in Mexico. These places are, by our definition, failed states. I, I, always, I always laugh at the use of the word failed state because by Western standards, most of the world is a failed state. It's been that way for the last several hundred years. In most cases, it doesn't make any damn difference. Uh, but the point, and, and, and the thing is, you don't want to manage somebody else's failure. You want them to fix it. You know, there are 175 million Muslims in Pakistan. We, we would like the Pakis to, to fix that. I don't want to manage that. You know, there are another, there are another 100 plus million disaffected Muslims in India. I, I, I want the Indians to handle that. These, these things are beyond our capacity. These places are going to have to work themselves out. But when you get something that, that is as serious as what's going on down in the Caribbean, You've got to protect your borders. You've got to protect your coastal waters. I would argue that the Coast Guard is underfunded and under-equipped. I would argue that the United States Navy be needs to become involved in the Caribbean. On average, we have one or two ships, if any, down there. Uh, th there is a tidal wave of criminality, uh, human trafficking, narcotics, terrorists, you name it, sweeping up from Central and South America. We're paying no attention to it. Now... Is part of the solution to legalize some of these drugs? That may be. That's a domestic issue. That's, to me, that's separate. What I'm interested in doing, people talk about 9-11, and I always point out to them, you know, you could have avoided 9-11 if you'd controlled your borders, 
and you paid attention to immigration, not just illegal immigration, but legal immigration. Most of those people came into this country legally and then disappeared. Doug, we got to uh, leave some time for some of the other questions here. Uh, we were going to go to the, the lady right behind the last question. Hi. Uh, my name is Christy Turner. Um, I'm an Army wife. Um, I went to Berkeley. My husband went to West Point. So it's been quite a culture shock for me in the past eight years. People always ask how we met Vegas. That's the only place that could actually happen. <laughs> So I wanted to um, comment and then maybe get your advice, the panel's advice, on, um, on ha- how to handle um, uh, something that I've been dealing with for the past eight years, supporting military families. My husband just finished his battalion command at Fort Bragg last summer. We were deployed the entire time in some capacity, so for two straight years. So I was able to see the ramp up to deployment, how that affected the families during the deployment and the after effects. And uh, the woman in front of me said that she was a, a mental health professional or health professional. And we've, we're seeing a lot of, obviously, impacts on that. And you're starting to see it come out in the news. Pentagon comes out with a report, what, last year about neglect and abuse. Well, we've been shouting that up the chain for the past five years. So my, your whole, it's interesting to hear from your perspective at the Pentagon and can it be fixed and how it is a cultural norm in the military to salute and drive on and you do with what you have and dissent is often seen as disloyalty so as a military spouse i'm advocating for these families i'm doing what i can for the 600 soldiers and the thousand families in our battalion but it's within a broken system so here i am with two degrees spending 40 hours a week for free and it's making a small difference but not the kind of difference it could actually make if we looked at the structure. So there's two main problems, and you guys address them at the Pentagon level, command accountability and communication. They're pretty good at shoving communication down, but not very good at getting it up. So we're seeing real-time effects. You know, we've had, we've had soldiers and family members try to commit suicide. I mean, all the stuff that you're hearing about. So my question is, Michelle Obama is highlighting military families. I have met with her a couple times in, in a group setting, and I'm trying to figure out a way to get to be a part of that military advisory board they're supposedly going to, to, uh, to put together. My worry is that most of, just like in the, the uh, soldier side or the officer side, it works that way on the wives' side, too. So you got these senior wives, all of whom, most of whom, are really good people. You're going to have to come to the question pretty soon. But they're, rem- they're removed from what's actually going on. So my question is, how can I, or people like me who have done the boots-on-the-ground thing, get, get to the people who are making the decisions on who goes on the board? I actually, first of all, I applaud your service, not just your husband's. You are doing a great service to the country. I would suggest you say publicly, even more publicly than you just did, exactly what you just said. I have nothing to add to it. Um, Voices like yours are really important. They should be heard. Um, If you will send me an op-ed piece stating what you just said, I will make sure the right people see it at the Washington Post. Well, we can, we, yeah, and, and you should be. I mean, that's actually part of the problem is the Army, the Army doesn't welcome uh, hearing that, you know, that sort of concern. Well, one thing that you might uh, just tuck away is that for many, many years now, uh, I've been advocating joint rotational readiness 
to make deployments uh, predictable. And uh, the United States Armed Forces, uh, particularly the ground force, has really resisted this. The Marines have one rotational system. The Army have a different one. And the personnel systems don't really promote cohesion. They say they do, but in truth, it's, it's not the case. Those structural and organizational reforms would make your life easier. And uh, we've resisted those, and that's part of what's in defense meltdown, or whatever it's worth. There are two organizations that you um, that might be helpful in helping to elevate you to the, the people that need to hear from you. One is um, IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, and the other is Operation Homefront. I think both of those might be great places to help give you a great platform. Two, two very quick points. One, keep yelling. Two... Um, if you want to affect who's on the, quote, board, unquote, um, don't look at what offices they've held on their resume. Look at what they did when they held those offices, um, their t- actual track record and dealing with the kinds of issues you're concerned about means everything, whether they've had a status job that might be relevant or not means nothing. Um, we have the unfortunate position now of appointing at the second tier of people in the Pentagon of looking just at the the, signature, the blocks of, of agency titles on their resume rather than looking at what they actually did when they held those positions, and there's a, there's a huge difference. So we got uh, two more questions, so uh, we'll go to the gentleman down here and then the gentleman up here, and then if we got time, we'll take one or two more right in the corner. Uh, Colin Clark with Military.com, and uh, ma'am, if you uh, send an op-ed to Military.com, they have a spouse uh, network. We'd be happy to put it up as well. Um, My question, since this is about fixing the Pentagon, um, okay, we can't do it next week, but um, you got two minutes with Gates in the elevator. What, since he's not going to be able to change more than maybe two or three big things, what do you tell him to do? The, the, the thing I would tell him to do is um, when you get phony proposals like you have here from Senators Levin and McCain, tear them up. Um, for example, this legislation, the, um, you know, they're going to solve all, the, all your problems. It's riddled with loopholes. Um, Everywhere else, there's they're not a loophole. They ask the Pentagon to monitor itself and report back to Congress. Um, legislation like that should not be taken seriously. Um, if Secretary Gates wants to um, um, make a real change, he needs to do what he talked about in his uh, foreign affairs article and on the speech he gave to Maxwell Air Force Base mentioning um, uh, Colonel John Boyd and the way he approached problems in the Pentagon. In other words, uh, talk is awfully cheap and we've had an awful lot of it, Um, but if you want to deal with Baroque weapons and weapons that are relevant to the form of warfare you're dealing with, get them out of the budget. Don't engage in stupid compromises. Do what you said you were going to do. 
Uh, I would tell Gates, number one, get rid of persistent warfare as a, as a doctrine and as a, as a mentality. The United States is about persistent prosperity and peace, not war. Uh, number two, uh, I would tell him to accelerate the withdrawal from Iraq, get out of there as quickly as possible, stop wasting money in the place, and then to urge the president to meet with uh, the leadership of uh, Iran, Russia, and India, and to de begin to develop a policy of containment, to contain whatever develops in Pakistan and Afghanistan, who must be seen as one entity, and uh, begin our withdrawals uh, from Afghanistan as soon as we can develop that strategy with those states that surround them. I would say Gates uh, would have to stop saying things like that uh, the top lobbyist of, of Raytheon was uniquely qualified to, to be um, the um, uh, his number two um, and recognize that we need to come outside that circle and look to the people that we're talking about who have actually have a whole career of trying to fix the problems, not being part of the problem. Uh, I think we need to tell Gates not to take the coward's way out and bow to the pressure, mostly from the Congress, when it comes to these weapon systems, by buying off everyone with giving them a piece of the pie. Just say no and don't, don't back down. My silver bullet uh, goes back to people. I would love to see 10% of all new promotion boards for brigadier generals, 10% of the list, be people who have been blackballed, people who were somehow considered outsiders, eccentric, outliers. Uh, that's, where the, that's the thing that would shake up the institution. That's the lever of power across the military services is control of the golden door to generalship. Let's, uh, we'll take one last question from the gentleman down front who's been very patient, and then we'll have to wrap up. Emilio Adolfo Rivero, New Cuba Coalition. I have a brief comment and brief question. Why don't we just, we're, why don't we just do the question? Oh, I'm sorry. I have a brief, brief comment, brief question to each one of the panelists. Ladies first. <clears throat> uh, Ms. Bryan, I suggest that you must be heard nationwide. And I suggest that you contact people who have programs. This is a, just a suggestion, but my question is this. In your, in your findings, have you seen uh, that because of wasting money in many programs, then we lack money for important programs? That will be the last question. Okay. Uh, Actually, when it comes to the military budget, I mean, the reality is there really hasn't been a, a ceiling. <laughs> so um, I, I don't think that's – I don't think I could say that when it comes to defense other than when you have specific – we did have one extraordinary example uh, where – and it was, it was so hateful. It was last Congress where the Senate was actually taking money away from um, night vision goggles. It was two Congresses ago. Literally, it was, a, it was a minus on night vision goggles to plus up for the, the Osprey. Uh, at a time when there was a very clear need on the ground. And so that was an extraordinary example of one of these wasteful, unnecessary programs absolutely hurting the troops. Okay, that we're gonna, we're, you can ask them after if, if they'll uh, entertain it. We gotta, we, we're out of time now. We're out of time. Uh, everybody here, uh, thanks for coming out and stay until the end, and you're all entitled to a sandwich as a result. Uh -huh. <laughs>